We're starting this new series, and you'll see it behind me. It says, Discovering an Uncommon Hero. And uh, this is looking forward to Lent. Uh, you know, this is the first Sunday of Lent, but in a real way, all of Lent looks forward to this Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday experience that we look forward to at the end of April. And, and the reason why is because this is the crux of what Christianity is all about, right? You would agree with me that at the heart of what our faith is about, either Jesus did die and did rise again or not. And if he did not, then we're here for no apparent reason. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if, if he did not, then there's no good reason to be here this morning. There's nothing that should be keeping us. The music was great, but it's not that great. Not good enough to keep us past whether or not Jesus is here. No, Terry's looking at me like, oh my goodness, are you insulting the guitar playing? Not, not at all. But this music is focused on worshiping Jesus. And that's what we're to be about. We're to be about worshiping Jesus. And the series is all about learning how to worship Jesus in truth and understanding the scriptures in some new ways. So if you want to, you can look in your Bibles at the Gospel of Mark. That's what we're going to be walking through. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses today, Mark 1, 1 through 13. I read out of the New American Standard today, um, and so it'll be on the screen behind you. If you're used to a different version, you'll be able to read along. Before we do, there's going to be something else on the screen. It's going to be a quote from C.S. Lewis. And uh, as we talk about Jesus, I want to talk about this from the standpoint of, of looking at his life in kind of an interesting angle. And Lewis puts it uh, in a unique way. So I'm going to read for you. You can read along with me, and it's at, at the, on the screen there. It says, A man who was merely a man, a man who was merely a man, and said that the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. It's kind of a ridiculous statement. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Jesus has not left that option open to us. In other words, Lewis would go on to summarize, he would say that you can either decide that Jesus is a lunatic or Jesus is a liar or you can decide that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, he's to be Lord of everything, not just a part of our lives, not just a little bit of us, not just this little religious piece of our week that we come and give to Parker Ford Church. He's to be a part of everything we do, everything we say, everything we give, everything we eat, drink, sleep. All of our lives are wrapped around this person who is the Lord. And so as we walk through this Lenten season, we have to keep our eyes fixed on what the author of Hebrews calls the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus the Christ. Because in fact, he did die and he did rise again, and it is the center of our faith and the source of all of the power that comes from it. It is the difference in our lives. It is the difference in our lives. So join with me as we read Mark 1, 1 through 13. I'm just going to read the first part of it to start off. Uh, Mark 1 begins with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's a gospel? What is the gospel? Okay, it's the good news. And, you know, good news is something that changes the game, right? This past weekend, something momentous happened, something besides what occurred in Japan. Does anybody know what else happened yesterday? Come on. There were more momentous things than happened at Talent last night. I actually did sing a solo. For those of you who weren't here, you were blessed to not be there. Uh, but, but actually yesterday, the NFL 
the National Football League locked out its players, right? Friday night, it locked them out. Yesterday, the union that represents the NFL Players Association decertified, and there's no longer any collective bargaining agreement between our country's greatest sport. That's a matter of opinion, so you can question that. But our country's greatest sport, they may not have a season this year, right? Now, for some of you, that might be good news, but for most of us, it's bad news. Laura, it's bad news, right? If the Eagles don't have a season, this is bad news. For me, it's bad news. I love the NFL, you know? It's bad news. And it kind of invades our, our whole world on a news level. Everybody's talking about it. And if the earthquake wouldn't have hit Japan, let me tell you, it would have been the biggest piece of news in our country this weekend probably. But it got kind of overshadowed by something much larger and obviously more important. But this world, uh, this world of the National Football League has announced what is really its worst news in a while, and that's that we might not actually have a season. And we're kind of invaded by that understanding that September could look a lot differently. I propose we get together every Sunday night and have a dinner, you know, I mean, because we're going to have nothing else to do now. Good news, bad news, it invades our... We can watch baseball till October, and then it's all over. But, but good news, bad news, it invades our life. It changes us. It involves something of a, of a change inside of us. And so I remember yesterday reading that for the first time and going, oh, no, oh, no, the NFL is now not going to have a season possibly. Now, it could, they could still work it out. We'll see. But the, con- the conversation seems rather hostile. We'll, we'll hope. But the beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ is the invasion of God's good news into a very real world. Jesus actually walking onto this planet and changing things, the grace of God, the good news of God, moving inside the actual world in which we live. And so Mark's going to write this gospel, that's what his book is called, he's going to write it about the good news that changed everything, and he's writing from a retrospective perspective. Did you hear that? He's looking from the future into the past as far as this book is concerned. And he's telling people who didn't know Jesus personally, weren't Jewish, weren't part of the the Israelite society that Jesus came to, he's telling them what happened back there. And so he's telling them about the good news that has invaded their lives and he's bringing them to the truth of how that actually took place. It's going to be rather strange, especially the first 13 verses. So we're going to follow along and kind of learn about this good news as we go. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. You've got to stop. He was clothed with camel hair. Anybody ever touched a camel? Padded one? Yeah, it's bristly, right, Todd? It's like a burrow hair or a donkey hair. I mean, it's like, you ever touch a pig's back? It kind of feels like that. And most of you are going, I grew up in the suburbs and I don't want to touch a pig and I never want to. But, but this is actually not a positive experience. Something, somebody touching this hairy animal called a camel, nobody wanted to pat them. They're not dogs. You don't pet them. They're just kind of nasty. And so this guy created clothes out of this. We've got to start to question. Okay? Start to let your mind and your imagination wander. It's not supposed to sound normal. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we just read it like, oh, that's okay, he dressed in camel hair. Well, it's not polyester, and it's not cotton. You know, it's, it's something weird. So John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and honey. Locusts 
You know what a locust is. A grasshopper, a cricket, you get the picture. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what do you think of this guy? John the Baptist. What words come to mind as you entertain the, the image in your mind, your imagination, of a guy who's dressed in camel hair, who's eating grasshoppers, who lives on honey, and he's down by this little tiny brook called the, the Jordan River, which even on a smaller day, a, a day when it's not spring in the Schuylkill River Valley, the Schuylkill is much larger than the Jordan River. This is a muddy little brook, and he's baptizing people there. What, what, what comes to mind? Crazy? Weirdo? What, Mel? Unique. Unique, okay. That's, that's giving him the benefit of the doubt. Wild. Somebody in the first service said hippie. <laughs> hippie, yeah. Anybody else? He's got a few screws loose, right? We've been watching, and you know, the other night late, Shelby ran out of something, and I had to go to Giant for, this is my active service as a, as a husband. I am the Giant guy. I go to the supermarket for, and I was there from 11 to 11.30 shopping. And, you know, I was, I was watching all the, ta- I was looking at all these tabloids as I'm going back and forth looking for all the things I don't know how to find in Giant. And, you know, I'm the guy who goes to aisle 22 and then 6 and then 3 and then 15 and then 1 because I can't figure it out. Everything's all over the place. I had five people helping me at Giants. This is really true. I had five people, and they were yelling, sesame seeds. They were looking for sesame seeds. I don't think they're on aisle 6 or on aisle 7, and they're yelling across the store. Nobody's there. It's great. But the tabloids, who was on the face of all the tabloids? Charlie Sheen. And why is Charlie Sheen on the face of all the tabloids? Because he's winning, yes, that's right. He's tweeting it all over the place. Is he actually winning? We're not quite so sure of that. He, he looks a little crazy right now, right? There's something about this guy who grabs our country's uh, interest, and we're, we're fascinated by him. His, his uh, real-life online show, you know, people are watching that thing. Anybody here dare admit they watched Charlie Sheen's show yet? Oh, come on, there's some... Li- <laughs> Harry says he has, but I just don't buy it. I didn't, I've never even gotten an email from Harry, so I'm not sure he's logging on to Charlie's show. But there's something about one of us, when we decide to say out in public in front of the millions of people in our country that we're a, a rock star from Mars, you know, like Charlie Sheen said, you know, it just it hits everybody as just crazy. And then everybody kind of tunes their, their channel into that station. And they, they press the volume button and they listen a little closer. Not because they trust, but because they wonder. They have question marks in their head, right? Now when John the Baptist starts doing this, and people start saying, there's this guy dressed in goat hair, and he eats grasshoppers. And he's getting people wet in the Jordan River, the muddy, nasty Jordan River. And he's, he's doing this... People just come by the droves. And why do they come? Because there's a lunatic down at the Jordan River. But he starts to preach and people have something happen to them. What happens in this situation can only be understood, as I, as I see it, as the Holy Spirit working in his life. 
There is something of a wacky nature to John the Baptist, just like there is to Charlie Sheen. And when one of those occurrences occurs, when one of those moments arrives in our life, we have to ask ourselves, is this because of something supernatural, which is one possibility, or it's because the person has gone off his rocker, and that's the other possibility, right? So either John is a lunatic, like C.S. Lewis said about Jesus, or else he's on to something. And as people are traveling, and from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River, it's about a 4,000-foot elevation drop. So you're walking down these rocky paths of hillside, kind of a mountain-climbing experience, and you go down there, and you look, and you watch, and you observe, and you see John preaching this message of repentance. He's saying, and it it doesn't record this in Mark, but he, he called people things like a brood of vipers. You know? What if I walked in here this morning as your pastor and said, you bunch of snakes? Who told you to come to church? Why would you get the grace of God? Why do you deserve God's grace? That's the sort of thing he said, and people stuck around, some of them. And it's because the Holy Spirit started to act in their hearts, I suspect. There was something supernatural behind the scenes. Inwardly, these people were being changed. And as John preached this message, it was altering their hearts, and they decided, yes, I'm going to give myself to this God in a new way. Yes, I'm going to step across the line. Yes, I'm going to expect the Holy Spirit to do more in my life. Yes, this guy isn't crazy. He's actually just somebody who God has gotten a hold of. Jesus will say later in his ministry that among women, there's nobody born of a higher stature in the mind of God than John the Baptist. Jesus himself affirms this guy and says, listen, he looks crazy and people talk about him and he's, legend, he's a legend and eventually he gets martyred by the king in his area and he gets killed. But let me tell you, he was actually sent by God and he was an amazing person. I like to use this analogy. He, he was like a toothpaste bottle that the Holy Spirit got a hold of. You know what I'm saying? And he started to squeeze. And he squeezed from the bottom and it went all the way out the top and there was nothing left. John the Baptist's life was, was, was somebody who God got a hold of so absolutely completely that he didn't have a wife and kids. He knew the mission of his life wouldn't allow it. He didn't have the normal job. He didn't have a retirement plan. He was set aside for a specific purpose. And it might have looked wacky, but it was because God was most efficiently using one of his greatest servants. This guy understood the Holy Spirit. And, you know, if most of us, we live in pretty decent houses and drive pretty decent cars and we have polyester knit some things on and, you know, we're not accustomed to life like somebody who lives in a cave down by the Schuylkill baptizing people who's homeless and he's homeless and doesn't know where his next bit of food's going to come from. And that's who Jesus is announced by. When the Holy Spirit starts to work, you don't know what's going to happen. Wouldn't you agree? You just don't. A few months ago, we had a service here, and we don't have a lot of altar calls at Parker Ford Church. We don't have that hellfire and brimstone sort of message. You know, you don't hear that here. I don't call you, and Tim doesn't call you a brood of vipers. That would not go over that well, probably. But what we do have is every now and then the Holy Spirit moving in an individual life. Sometimes it's one person just quietly weeping at the front. Other times it's people coming forward in droves. And others of us are looking, going, what in the world is happening to those people? And it's not because Tim or I called them ahead of time and said, hey, listen, you get the email, go forward at the the critical moment in the service. We never manipulate these things. We had this anointing service. Dave and I, Dave Willauer and I were out back with, with anointing oil, praying for people, not so that something amazing would happen in the supernatural sense, just expecting that the Holy Spirit was moving and restoring lives. 
when I went off to Bible college, I came from this small Baptist church, and you know, everybody sang the same hymns over and over, and everybody sang the same verses of the same hymns, and everybody sat in their seats while they sang those hymns, and it was always the same. You get the picture. And then I go off to this school, which drew from all sorts of denominations, and it was, it was for Christian ministry, but people were of very different stripes and different ethnicities and different denominational groups, and were there, and I remember the first time I saw somebody with their hands up like this, and they weren't singing the same verse of the hymn that I thought we should be. You know what I'm saying? And they're like doing this, and their eyes are shut. I was like, that guy is crazy. What's the matter with that guy over there? He's like all out there like this. Do you ever have those thoughts? You ever look at somebody else in a worship service, and you see what they're experiencing, and you go, I don't know if that's authentic. Is it real? When the Holy Spirit starts to move in people's lives, you don't know how it impacts them. And it's going to be different than the way it impacts you. And the question is, are we going to affirm and respond to what God does, even though it's the unexpected? Or are we going to control it and say, no, God only works the way that I say he's going to work. When somebody decides to give away more money than is expected and everybody else hears about it, there's this thing that happens in a church where people start to go, wow, what was that? Was that person really giving or were they giving from this place of they just want to look good in front of everybody else? I'm not saying that because there's any great gift given in this church in the past month. I'm saying it because I've seen it happen. When the Holy Spirit gets in charge of different people's lives and they drop things off of their life, they might change their behavior. They might leave behind some activity. They may do this or that, and they may not be moral evils. But what's happening is they're listening to the Spirit of God. Down by the river, John looked wacky. He looked like Charlie Sheen announcing Jesus' arrival. And who would listen to that unless the Spirit of God moved? And the Spirit of God did move. And then everybody started to go, wow, there's something here. There were certainly those who walked out of that experience and said, I don't want to be baptized. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to walk into the muddy Jordan River. It's just water. You know what's in the baptismal water here at Parker Ford Church when we baptize people? Oh, that's right. The last baptismal, there was, there, was a, there was a big spider. Owen Moore got down there and waded in and conquered it, if I remember, yeah. Uh, but, but besides the spiders, what's special about this water? It's cold. Anything else? Nothing, right? There's nothing special. You know, what, you know, we do this anointing service every now and then where we anoint people with oil. You know what's special about that oil? Nothing. You know what's special about the people who are baptizing? I usually do those services in our church or the, oil that, or the people who are anointing with oil. You know what's special about them? Nothing. There's nothing special about Josh Blightwork. There's nothing special about Tim Deering. There's nothing special about Dave Willauer or Jay Deering or Carol Deering or any of the deacons in our church. There's nothing special. We're just human beings. The water is not very unique. The oil is not very unique. In fact, we get it at Gennardi's and Giant and Kmart, just like where you get your cooking oil. And honestly, it's not special. What's special is the Holy Spirit. And you know, you can see how Tim and I lead because we're predictable. We always say the same sorts of things over and over. We, we direct people in the same sorts of ways, but when God gets a hold of individual lives, well, that's where it gets a little crazy. That's when we don't know what will happen next because Josh and Tim and leaders in general have a pattern for how they lead, but the Holy Spirit looks inside of each one of us, knows the plan, knows what God's calling us to, and it's very unique. John the Baptist is evidence that Jesus' ministry started in a very unique way and our God has had a unique history and he's doing remarkable things at each place and time. And if we're going to listen to the Holy Spirit, then what we're going to expect is the unexpected. What we're going to expect is that we're not just going to give 
the normal amount of money or we may not give exactly what everybody else thinks we should give, we're going to listen to God. We're not going to raise our kids in just the way everybody else always says, raise your kids this way. Sure, we'll listen to the scriptures about those things, but what we're going to do is go beyond that and start to listen to the Spirit as we pray for our individual children and expect God to move in their lives. So are we expecting the unexpected? I want to start this, this, this next couple points by just reminding you that the job during Lent is to listen to God and to ask him, where exactly are you going to move in my life? What do you want to do? What, what thing that I'm not expecting do you want to accomplish? And when God invades your life with the good news, when it pervades you and starts to move inside you because the Holy Spirit himself is echoing it inside your heart, when that happens, respond by saying yes. You know, there were people that went down to the Jordan River and they were watching John the Baptist and they were sitting on the banks and they were going, I don't know. Camel hair? Really? Locusts? We have these toads in our house and we feed them, gra- we f- we feed them crickets. Literally, this is true. We buy them at Petco. Do you know that when you get near the Petco cricket cage, there's nothing in that store that smells worse than crickets. They are awful. John the Baptist ate those things. When somebody got downwind of John the Baptist and they weren't quite hearing from the Holy Spirit or they weren't listening to the Holy Spirit, did they want to be baptized by him? When they saw that muddy water and they saw him doing all this preaching and calling people snakes, I don't think without the Holy Spirit it works at all. When God invades, it's the unexpected that becomes the expected. We have to start to look. When the good news starts to change our lives and transform us, that's, that's the first level of what happens. But watch what happens next. Verse 9, I'm going to start reading again. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you... I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Why do people get baptized? Okay, obedience. Todd got the, you know, backhand answer. The If you don't do it, then... What, what, why else? I'm making fun of you, Todd. I, I like you, but... What? A new start. Okay. Good Good answer. We take baths because we need to get clean, right? That's why you take a bath. You become baptized. You get baptized because you need need to get clean on the inside. Now, baptism doesn't actually change your heart, and it doesn't change the inside of you at all. It's just an outward sign of an inward change. Who actually does change the inner part of a human being? The Holy Spirit, right? And so what Jesus does, and John is doing this to all sorts of people, is he's baptizing people and he's saying, listen, if you want to be cleansed, if you want a new start, if you want to be obedient to God and start over, as Todd said, then what you need to do is you need to submit to this whole deal of baptism. Now, it's just an outward sign. The Jordan River has nothing miraculous about it. You know, Jay Deering was actually, as a baby, baptized in the Jordan River. It's really true. The water was shipped here from the ancient world to Baltimore, Maryland, where this pastor baptized him as a little tiny child. And he was baptized in this specific Jordan River water because maybe something good would come of it. Now, Carol, let's ask you the question. Did anything really good come of that Jordan River water? No, but the, the Spirit of God changed, Jay. The water did very little, right? So why did Jesus get baptized? Did Jesus need an interchange? Have you ever asked yourself this question? Did Jesus need to be changed? 
If we take baths because we need to get clean, why did Jesus get baptized? Because he didn't need to be any cleaner on the inside of his life than he was before. The man walked perfectly. He was God and man both at the same time. So how in the world would this baptism thing make sense for him? The answer is it didn't. It didn't. It didn't make any sense. So then we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus decide to be baptized? And the answer is because he decided to walk into the human race at the level of everybody else in this race. You and I are normal human beings, and Jesus wanted to show us how to walk. And instead of being one of those teachers who lorded it over others, I'm so big and I'm so great, and I can explain the truth so much better than every other rabbi in Israel, Jesus walked in at the ground floor and said, no, everybody who wants to walk with God should be baptized. And even though it's not really an interchange, I'll be a part of this. I'll submit to John the Baptist, who's not even a bigger leader than I am. Jesus is, of course, the Son of God, being baptized by just another human being like you and me, a great human being and a weird human being, but just another human being like you and I. So when God invades our lives and the gospel comes cleanly into our lives and we start to understand things in a new way, we have to respond in humility. Jesus decides in this moment as God's call is on his life to respond with this humility that says, I'm not going to look like I'm better than other people. I'm not going to expect that they just think I'm better. I'm going to walk in at an average grassroots level and I'm going to let the power of God work through me. And whatever happens, happens. There's a tremendous trusting situation. You know, we're tempted all the time by what God does in our life to start to become entitled. We think we're better. We, we, you know, maybe we're, somebody struggles with drinking and we leave the alcohol behind. You know, And then we look at everybody else who drinks at that moment. We see some drunk person. We go, man, what an idiot. You, know? you ever leave something behind at the direction of the Spirit of God and then look at everybody else who does that thing and go, man, they're idiots, they're morons, they're the messed up people who live that life that I've left. What is that? It, it's legalism, it's pride, it's entitlement. It's anything other than what Jesus is doing in this moment of baptism where he says, I'm going to humble myself. And even though I'm the Messiah, even though I'm God's own son, I'm going to walk in on the ground floor and I'm going to submit to what everybody else has to submit to in this world. And I'm going to decide to look down on no one. No one at all. Tremendously different than all of the narcissistic rabbis of Azera, which were all, look at me, come look at me, come watch me, I'm amazing, I can do this amazing teaching, I can be an amazing leader. Instead, Jesus is like, listen, I'm going to start like everybody else. And it's in that moment that Jesus is affirmed by his Father God. A few years ago, 1999, I guess that's more than a few, 12 years ago, I had an experience with God. I was working and just the Lord started to work in my life. I wrote some stuff down, just realized that God was directing me to change my life in some specific ways, very unique ways. It was, it was stuff that was game changers. I had to leave my job and do some other things. And, I, and God was leading, and it was really remarkable. So I decided that, you know, God was calling me. Something was taking place in my life. I knew this wise woman, Shelby, and I both know her, and she was really a great counselor. Um, in, in, in a spiritual counselor. So I set up a time to go talk with her. And I sat down with her. Her name was Marianne. I said, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. It's one of the most humiliating experiences of my existence. I sat down to the, with this woman, and I was sitting there with another person there as well. And I sat down and I said, listen, God is starting to work in me, and he's really doing this great work. And, and I feel like he's calling me to this, and I wonder what you think my giftings are. And I just feel like I'm being set apart for some sort of ministry. And I just have this sense that God is leading and working and moving and doing this stuff. And it sounded all good, right? I mean, God moving, that's language we like around here. 
God directing, God changing, God transforming. But this woman looked at me and she said, you know, you, you just said about three paragraphs worth of information. I said, okay. And you use first-person pronouns in about every sentence and sometimes twice. I, me, my, it's my call. It's my leadership direction. It's God leading me and I'm special because you're unique, you think, she said. This is about me. This isn't about God. This is about me. And she said, whenever I use that many first-person pronouns, and she said it in this grammatical style that was much worse than if she would have just, you know, made the point any other way. She had to use grammar. She says, listen, whenever I say I or me or my that much, I realize I'm not in the plan of God already. You know, I walked into that room like this balloon that was inflated. You know what I'm saying? You ever see on the Discovery Channel those toads, the big frogs that blow up? You know, and they sit there during... And I walked in thinking God was moving in my life and he was asking me to change and it meant that I was unique and special and whatever. And I walked out deflated, just down to nothing. Why? Because I was taking pride and it's the strangest thing to take pride in. But as God was moving in my life, I can even take pride in that. I can even become arrogant about that. Jesus in humility subjects himself to baptism. And God the Father himself decides that this is the moment. It's only one of two moments in Jesus' ministerial life where the Father God says this. He comes down from heaven and he says, Listen, this is my son and I am well pleased with you. You need to know that everything that comes from this moment, Jesus, I am blessed that you're doing it and that you're being it because you are my son. And he was willing to submit to the place where God could approve him. You know, everybody else would, across his life, try to approve of Jesus, try to make him feel good, try to follow him and make him into something. But in this moment, when you see Jesus respond in humility, you realize that it was the internal life of Christ that was more important than all those people who were following him all the time. The ministry of Jesus wasn't about people behind him. It was about him listening to God the Father to the point where he would do what he was told to do in the moment when he was told to do it. That was the life of Christ. And if it wasn't that way, it would never have worked to the end that it came to. You know, you realize that Jesus humbled himself in this moment. Two and a half years from then, maybe three and a half, nobody's quite sure. Between two and a half years from then, he would, in three and a half years, he would submit to the ultimate form of humiliation, right? Being crucified on the cross. What if Jesus would have decided, no, I'm going to enter this ministry as a, as a really great pastor leader, just another religious leader who everybody could follow and everybody could understand and really think was wonderful. Then he would have never, from that posture, from that place of a heart, he would have never made it to the cross. Wouldn't you agree? Anybody who walks around thinking they're that great wouldn't die for Josh Bitework. Anybody who could see inside of my heart the way Jesus has seen inside of my heart wouldn't die for me if he didn't have an absolute humility. When we see the Spirit of God move, when people come up here and they start to walk in this church as far as what God's calling them to do, they're giving up things, they're moving in their life, the first thing is that we have to expect the unexpected. The second thing is that we have to be very careful that it's God that we're following and that we're doing it in a place of humility. It's between us and him, and it's not about everybody else in this room. It's not everybody, about everybody else in our area. It's not about our family. It's not about our spouses. It's about God and me. And when he says do it, what do we got to do? We've got to do it, whatever it is that he's calling us to do. There's a third step. I'm going to read the last two verses, 12 and 13. It says, Immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness, And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. 
Notice this. Immediately the Spirit impelled Jesus to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being by, tempted by Satan and no one else. Do you notice this? Across the life of Christ, he's going to draw people. There's 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children along with them at the feeding of the 5,000 where he feeds this whole crowd. When he, when he walks on water, there's 12 disciples watching. When he turns water into wine at the, at the feast in Cana, who knows how many of his disciples were there. Across his life, he's rarely going to be alone. One of the places of aloneness comes early, and it's where Satan comes along and tempts him. He's alone in the wilderness when Satan comes. If we're going to expect God to move spectacularly and in unexpected ways, and if we're going to respond in humility, then it's going to change us, and we're going to start to think what happens in here is much more important than anything that happens out here. Jesus is out in that wilderness working alone, and and Satan comes to him and starts to tempt him. And the battle that takes place between him and Satan is in fact one that is won already because Jesus has submitted to God the Father, and it's in here that he's submitted. It's in here that he's heard the heart cry of the Father God and he's realized his call and he walks into that wilderness and he says, I can go undergo any amount of temptation and not fall. I'm not going to fall apart because of what's going on in my inner life. Now, if it would have been about all the people who were going to follow Christ, if it would have been about the ministry and about the managing of all the funds that people were giving to the ministry, if it would have been about all of the educational processes, and if it would have been about the disciples becoming good sub-leaders who could really delegate authority and create this massive organization, if it would have been about any of that, then when Jesus, when Jesus is tempted by Satan to take power that shouldn't have been his, when he's tempted to make food out of a stone, when he's tempted by these various temptations that aren't even recorded in this passage, let me tell you, Jesus would have fallen apart. Any one of us, when we look at the outside and we're expecting God to move out here and we're not focused in here, when we look everywhere but inside ourselves, we miss the point. Where does God want to do the unexpected? Here. What is the posture of a heart that can allow him to do the unexpected? Humbleness humility, meekness, gentleness of soul, spirit. And when it comes to Satan tempting us and when the Spirit of God moves, Satan does tempt. He comes at us from some blind side and he starts to angle towards us and he gets a hold of us in some way when it's not about the internal scorecard, when it's not about our own soul, when it's about other people. Let me tell you, we have trouble because then our faith is based on pride and all these other things. Warren Buffett, you're familiar, I suspect, with Warren Buffett. The third richest man, it was just announced. This year he's the third richest. Every now and then he's been the second. But he's the third richest man in our world. And I saw an interview with him a few years ago where they asked him, it was Charlie Rose on uh, PBS, who asked him, he said, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? He said, listen, my dad said to me when I was a kid that there are two types of scorecards. It's just like golf. Everybody's got a scorecard. And there are the people who have their own scorecard and they look on the inside of their life and their goals are their own and they're never looking from the eyes or the vantage point of everybody else. They're looking just from their own vantage point. And then there are the other people and they have scorecards and they're, 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 they're looking. I got Jim Howland's scorecard right here, you know. Yeah, I'm keeping track of Jim and I'm looking at Jeff Simon and I've got a scorecard for Jeff Simon. And those people look at everybody else and they look at themselves only after looking at everybody else. Warren Buffett said, the best piece of advice I've ever gotten is to only keep my own scorecard. To look at me. When we come before the Spirit of God and he starts to work like he did in the life of Christ and like he did in the life of John the Baptist in this story, the question is, who are we looking at? 
We're looking at God and we're looking at us. And when that happens, spectacular things occur, miraculous ministries. Satan is literally defeated, literally defeated in this moment because Jesus is willing to look at himself and at God in the plan and never to look at the enemy and never to look at all the people who he might have been able to help by being tempted and giving in to the temptation and all of that. When the Spirit of God moves, expect the unexpected. When the Spirit of God in your life moves, decide to receive it humbly. When the Spirit of God moves, when the Spirit of God moves, decide that your call, that your call is to take it alone and do what you're supposed to do, that your job is exactly what Todd said. It's to be obedient. You know, Shelby and I both get tempted. We're best friends. I mean, we have a great relationship. I really love my wife, and I think you really love me. Uh, We have this great connection But when Satan tempts us, you know who's there with us? Nobody but Jesus. Shelby faces temptations that I never hear about. I face temptations that that she never hears about. We might share those things, but in the moment, when we're really facing some dark difficulty, when Satan's getting into our lives in some way we don't want, let me tell you, it's usually when I'm alone. And it's all about humility. It's all about trusting in God. It's all about seeking him alone that will make the difference in that moment in my life. It's not about even Shelby helping me. It's not about anybody in this church. I can call for prayer, but that's as good as it gets. We face those moments in a very real sense by ourselves. When God moves, when God moves, we can expect to see the good news birthed in our life in remarkable ways. And we want nothing more in this church than to listen to God and receive his instruction and to walk in it. Jay Jay Deering and I were headed to a a district board meeting yesterday and we were talking about what church should be. And at the core of what we hope church should be, this is Jay and I just having a conversation on 422. You know what I'm saying? This wasn't some leadership strategic meeting. Just the two of us. You know, all we really want is for God to get his way in this church. All we want is for God to have his way with us. That's it. That's the church. All right? We'll look forward to a Latin series that will end at the end of April. This is just the first installment. Tim will be back next week to share with you. Join me in prayer.